Welcome to Discern This. I'm your host, Lonzo Cook. Our guest today is media expert, author, and journalist, Frank Sesno. He is currently Director of Strategic Initiatives at the George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs. Before that, he had a distinguished career at CNN, where he was Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, White House Correspondent, Anchor, and Talk Show Host. Frank Sesno, welcome to Discern This. Lonzo, thank you very much. It's delightful to be with you. I'd like to start by asking, how would you assess the current state of news media in the United States? I would assess it as very challenging. There are so many things that are happening, have happened, that really are problems. And, and the word I like to use is challenge, but that understates it. The audience has changed. The technology has changed. Our politics have changed. We are so deeply divided and polarized. Increasingly, media seem to have taken sides in the public has sort of gone with that and it's created mega brands kind of in the, you know, in the, in the corners of the boxing ring and trying to figure out how um, news organizations can be profitable at a time when it's increasingly digital and the digital model is not anywhere near as profitable as the old subscription and subscriber model is an enormous hurdle because it's expensive to do journalism well and professionally and ambitiously. It's enormously cumbersome to, to cover the world so that we can bring people information from around the planet, to provide security, to provide benefits, to have the legal support and all the rest that, that journalism needs to make sure it's doing a good job. So, um, you know, we've been in a transition phase probably for the last 20 years since really this, the, the digital um, transformation began. It's accelerated with social media and all the rest. There is an opportunity here for news organizations that can figure it out because they can market themselves specifically to a particular point of view or a subject area or to quality information. But there's enormous competition for people's time and attention. And, and the audience, and we see this in surveys, this is not just an opinion, is more distrustful of traditional media than they have been there's more mis and disinformation. So it's a very complicated, very um, cumbersome environment to navigate. Looking towards the positive side, what are some of the opportunities that present themselves to news media? Well, I'm glad you asked that because we actually should look to the positive side. Because even in this really turbulent, difficult time, there is some phenomenal journalism taking place. The Atlantic is doing it. The Guardian is doing it. NPR is doing it. The traditional networks are doing it, though they're much less noticed than they once were. Um, so I think where the opportunities are is we can get to audiences differently now than in the past. There is um, an insatiable appetite for information, but it might break down more along niche audiences. So the massive kind of general audience that in the old days, a Dan Rather or a Peter Jennings would have seen gathering around the television set for the network nightly news. That really doesn't exist in the same way. But there are still very dedicated viewers and readers and listeners. And then there are new entries. There are YouTube channels and YouTube stars who have millions of views. They are not affiliated with any organized news organization. So or they may be, but it's a different kind of affiliation or an organized news organization is actually taking advantage of YouTube channels. There also have been some terrific documentaries because now through streaming 
channels and other things, there are more opportunities and more platforms for the content that's being generated. So for people who are interested in quality journalism, there's a great deal of quality journalism out there. That's one thing. And then the other, and quickly, so sorry, I'm going on so long here. But the other thing is there, there has been this kind of tumultuous democratization of journalism. I mean, once upon a time, it was a pretty narrow band of characters, cast of characters who put the newspaper together that ended up on someone's door or the newscast together. There are, so, and I see it from the university, so many young people from so many different walks of life, more diversity, not enough still, but much more diversity in newsrooms. That brings different perspectives. And that too really helps the kinds of stories and the perspectives that those stories can represent because of the lived experiences that these journalists and aspiring journalists have had. I guess melding the challenges, which are formidable, the challenges and the opportunities, how do you see news media evolving in the country? Yeah, good question. Well, in, in my humble opinion, the way they need to evolve is the first thing they need to ask is, who is our audience, right? Um, increasingly, you, 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 you're not going to go, I mean, <laughs> right, the term broadcast, right? The audience was broad. It was a general audience. Now it's narrow cast. The audience is narrow. So I want to talk to young women um, who are college age and younger, or I want to talk to um, a middle-aged African-American audience, you know, as a host or, or a network or a, or a news organization, because that's how the audience is, is able to find content in many cases. There are some generalists out there and power, powerhouses still. Like I mentioned earlier, it's The Guardian, it's The Wall Street Journal, it's The New York Times. They still exist and they're doing great work. So the opportunities are find new audiences. The opportunities are engaging new people. The other opportunities are really know your brand, right? So if you want to be a high-end news organization, you want to say you can trust our information. You have an opportunity to make a compelling case to an audience when the audience typically does not trust information. And that maybe is going to require you to do business a little bit differently. You're going to have to be more open about your news gathering process. Bring the audience into that so that they can actually see it so that they can trust it. Um, or, and this has been very successful as a business model, you can be hard right or hard left and go for that audience. So um, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. I, I understand the appeal for an audience, but I'm, an, I'm a bit of an, of a, I want to call it an old school guy because I actually don't think it's old school. We need, our country needs, our citizens need, each of us individually need information that's real and trustworthy so we can make decisions that affect our, our own lives, never mind the countries, based on what we actually know and not merely what we think or fear. I'd like to move on to the essence of reporting. How can journalists make news stories interesting and relevant, particularly when it comes to your specialization of environmental reporting? Well, we've talked about this a lot, and in some ways it's changed very dramatically, in others it hasn't changed at all. And that's storytelling. We have to be compelling storytellers. What does that mean? It means the people we tell stories about, we need to make them interesting. They need to be relatable to the audience. Um, the sources that we use, the people who, are, who appear in stories with either comment or life experience, they have to be credible. They have to be real people that, that, that um, news consumers can not only relate to, but feel um, are telling them the truth. Um, the, the story needs to have an arc, right? We talk about this, I talk about this a lot, right? What is a story? 
The story is about compelling characters trying to achieve some kind of worthy outcome, we presume, and overcoming obstacles to get there, right? There's always tension at the core of a story. So whether that's a scientist trying to discover a breakthrough medicine or the new cosmos, or whether that's a politician trying to prevail on a particular bill or win re-election, or whether that's a sports star trying to win the championship. These are compelling people who face obstacles, opposition, cost, setback, um, to achieve something that's worthy. And that's a bit of a template, and it's, it's a little glib, and, and, and storytelling is not and should not be seen as formulaic. But telling those stories and making things real to people is so important. Then layering that on top of what is our new reality now because of technology and the way people are consuming information. So yeah, people will still sit down with a big, long 400-page novel and they'll read a book holding the book. But they're also going to read it on their, you know, on, on their tablet. They're also going to listen to it as an audio book. They may just read a synopsis someplace because it's out there. They may go right to reviews. So recognizing how audiences get their information, right, and, and, and how they obtain it and telling the story for those different platforms is part of the formula, I think. Drilling down on that, Frank, what makes for a compelling character? It's a great question. And you're a journalist and, you know, um, what makes somebody interesting? And how do you as the storyteller find those things and convey it? So there's your scientist, and the scientist starts every day at 6 o'clock in the morning, standing on her head in the corner because the blood rushes to her brain, and that gives her her big ideas. Whoa, that person's kind of interesting. Somebody has faced astonishing adversity in their lives, but they have prevailed. A Paralympic skier who had a terrible accident as a college student, but has fought and, and worked and come back, and now is winning gold medals at the Paralympics. You care about that person somebody who is passionate about the planet and the future, and they believe that they and their brothers and sisters and other young people are going to be relegated to a, to a burning orb if they don't do something about it, understanding where they're coming from. People have motivations. People are real. They're three-dimensional. And I think conveying that as a storyteller is vital to making someone compelling and making them real. I had a, a conversation not too long ago about climate change, and we were talking to a farmer. And this farmer was a fourth-generation farmer. He had a farm in Maryland. And he was saying, he wasn't talking about climate change. He wasn't talking about anything else. But he was talking that the rains had changed. And he was worried that all the topsoil from his farm was going to be washed away. And so they put in a new system of berms and drains to try to retain the topsoil and help the water go up. But what he was really worried about was were his children going to be able to inherit the farm? And he talked about the animals and the, and the crops and what it was like bringing children up, you know, in, in an environment like that. Well, he's just interesting. You know, he was just an interesting person. And so it's finding interesting people. That's part of what you do as a journalist who can help tell the story. And then how you craft them, how you help them tell their own story. So that interesting part of them emerges through the story. That's how you find and tell compelling characters' stories, I think. Frank, what are the particular challenges of environmental reporting? Huh, there are a lot of them. Um, I've heard it all before. You know, what's, what's new here? Uh, it's really depressing and distressing. Uh, will, people, will people tune out? Uh, there's too much science. Is it attainable? Um, 
the story is happening over such a long period of time, climate change, for example, we keep talking about 2050, 2100. How do people relate to that when they're much more immediate challenges in most people's lives is putting food on the table, getting back and forth to work every day, making sure their kids are healthy and well and growing up in a safe environment. Um, so there are a lot of challenges to environmental reporting, but there are also phenomenal opportunities because it is so visual, whether it's the glaciers or the water or the polar bears, whether it's relatable because people have walked in the woods or they've climbed a mountain or they drink water or they eat food. So I think the environmental story writ large, like the big story, and there are probably literally millions of them, are both the most challenging, but also the most fascinating and I think the most interesting. Because the environmental story, the air we breathe, the water we drink, what's happening with extreme weather, our hurricanes, drought, heat, everybody experiences that. And we don't need to talk about them in this in political terms. I'm looking outside at a very deep, dark, threatening sky right now. I actually care whether it's going to rain hard or not. Um, you know, I, I grew up going to national parks and seeing beautiful, pristine places. And I want to take my kids and my grandkids there. Millions and millions of other people want to do that, too. Um, the issue of equity and justice is huge. Um, so speaking environmentally, communities of color, lower income people live downstream of the refinery or the toxic waste dump. Whether you're a community that's actually so situated or you care about your fellow citizens who are, those are stories that you can make matter to people because it's about fundamental justice. And we don't want that. Asthma, health, we all have health issues. So when it's 117 degrees outside or whether, then, whether there's more particulate matter in the air, we care about that because that it's going to affect our health and our kids' health or our friends' and neighbors' health. So the obstacles to environmental reporting is it can be very technical and long-range and kind of amorphous, but the opportunities there is, if done right, it can be very visual, it can be very real, it can be very immediate, and it can be very relatable. I'd like to turn to political polarization. Do journalists exacerbate or merely reflect the partisan divide in the country? They do both. Um, you know, there's no question in my mind that the journalists and media share some of the responsibility for the polarizing world we now, polarized world we now live in. Um, you know, in the book that I wrote about asking questions, I, I observed there are too many exclamation points and too few question marks. And that applies too often to people in the media, talk show hosts and others, whether they're on radio or podcast or television or cable. And so we share some of that responsibility for polarizing the, the public, feeding them what they want to know and not saying, folks, this may be a little inconvenient for you because it may not be exactly what you think, but here's the reality. Um, but we also mirror it. Um, and we mirror it because it's where the, where the public has gone. And not just in this country. We see this all around the world uh, where people now, largely because of media, in particular social media, can live in their bubbles, reinforce their bubbles, find others who share their bubbles, and, and, and they don't want to venture far away from that. And they seek media that is going to reverberate uh, within that bubble. And then that 
offers a business model, right? Profit, money, clicks and eyeballs for, for media that do that. So we have a very strange symbiotic relationship here with the media and this polarization. Because I think without any question in my mind, um, media share the responsibility for creating and for nurturing this highly polarized environment we're in, but they're also reflecting larger trends in politics and culture and media that have led to this place. I, I guess I guess the distillation would be, you know, does the media follow or does it lead? Well, I, I think it does both. I, I, and I don't mean to be trying to weasel out of your question because I've experienced this. I mean, I've heard the audience and what the audience wants. And, you know, we want to be responsive to our audience. But then we get out there and if we get carried away or sensational or other kinds of news organizations can lead the way with something that suddenly gains traction or reinforces what people think they already believe. There's no better example for this, in my view, than media who want to ratify, validate incorrect information, whether it's around COVID and what you know safe behaviors are and what science actually knows or climate change or the, the election, we've seen conspiracy theories live through media, thrive through media, whether it's was the CIA involved in JFK's killing or the Lindbergh baby. And it's not just in our current moment and environment where this has been the case, right? There was no social media when the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped. But the media played off of that. They found that it worked. The audience hung on to every word and they, they fed it and fed it and fed it. I was at CNN when the O.J. Simpson case broke and then... We, we, we covered the trial. I was on the air, Anzo, during that. I had a new newscast preempted for the O.J. Simpson trial. The ratings for the O.J. Simpson trial were 20 times what my ratings were for a newscast. Okay, you tell me. How do you respond to that if you're you know, running the network? Is it the role or responsibility of media to try to overcome partisan differences? to encourage mutual empathy and understanding between conservatives and liberals? Yes, I think it is. I mean, I think, I think the media have journalism, let's, let's use the term journalism and not media here because they're different things. Traditionally, journalism has done a number of things, and this has been part of the craft. It's why I got into it, you got into it, and, and what journalism once upon a time meant. It meant, at a high level, holding those in power accountable, whether this was a CEO who was stealing money from the corporation, a local police chief who was corrupt, a teacher who was abusing students, a criminal who was prowling the streets. Journalists tell those stories so they can be in the public domain and those individuals can be held accountable in a democracy that, you know, operates. Secondly, journalism is meant to seek the truth. So part of the job is you have verifiable sources. You tell your audience where the information comes from. You have multiple sources. You can demonstrate that the facts that you are presenting are real and credible and, and, and verifiable. Three, you give voice to the voiceless. Journalism traditionally has elevated, whether it's in the sweatshops in the early 1900s and Upton Sinclair in the jungle and the way workers were being abused, or it's the civil rights movement, or it's, you know, whomever you want to pick out, journalism in, the, in, in, a, in traditional ways has tried to shine a light and give a platform to people who are otherwise being forgotten, left behind, taken advantage of, or abused. 
And it's very important because the public responds to that. And so I, I think that, you know, these are the kinds of things that we can do and, and, and should do. And, and you know, the, the public, for the most part, still wants that. The other thing to your question, do, can we bring people together? Can we bring differing sides together to debate and discuss and maybe seek resolution? Yes. I mean, that's not our job. It's not in the job description. Thou shalt solve problems. <laughs> Thou shalt you know, be a reconcili- uh, be a conciliator out there. Um, but in, in, in exploring these different issues, accountability, voice to the voiceless, um, fact and, 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 and perspective, part of that is, can be bringing people together and being a problem solver, especially in local news, especially news organizations that are working in communities. They both cover the town hall meeting, but they might also bring people in the town hall meeting from different perspectives together to have a conversation that maybe helps them and the audience understand one another better. You mentioned your book on the art of effective inquiry called Ask More, and and you've taught a course on the art of the interview. What is the role of empathetic questioning in modern journalism? To reach out and try to understand. You know, empathy is about standing in someone else's shoes. It's not sympathy, it's empathy. It's about what does it feel like, look like, sound like, smell like, to be that person? What is that lived experience really like? Can you understand what it's like if you're a white person to be a black person who's pulled over as you're driving through a prosperous neighborhood at the speed limit? Can you understand what it's like to be a CEO or a business person and you're just saddled with regulation and you can't try to hire and move as quickly as you want and you can't grow your business? Can you understand what it's like? Can you feel what it's like to be a young person wanting to go to college and looking at how much it costs and thinking, how am I ever going to do this? Telling those stories, bringing people into other people's lived experiences is actually, and it relates to other parts of the conversation we've had. It's about having compelling characters because that's a real person. It's about that voice that you're giving to somebody else. And it's about understanding the differences in in our lived experience. And if that creates an empathetic or empathic relationship or experience, I think that's a good thing because it's another way of saying we just understand better. And as I think about the mess that we're in right now politically, so much of it is we're just talking past one another. And there's so many people on the left who think that everybody on the right who supports Donald Trump is a racist. And so many people on the right who thinks everybody on the left is a socialist. Now, that's ridiculous. That's not true. And actually, when you get together with people, and if you travel or you're a tourist, you know, someone's going to hold the door open for you who comes from that other point of view. Someone's going to help you change your flat tire who comes from that other point of view. And you go, now, not all of them. I mean, there are bad people on all sides. I don't mean to sound like a flip side of somebody who said there are good people on all sides, because I don't mean that. And there's more bad in some places than others. And that's a story, too. And we can't shy away from that. But I, I do think that, you know, I think that, that the kinds of questioning questions that we can ask as journalists, as family members, as citizens to help us understand better and empathy, empathize are really important. And they connect to one other thing. Lonzo, I'm sorry for talking so much here, but they could connect to one other thing that's so important, which is listening. We also need to be able to listen, not just hear, but listen. 
I'd like to turn to ethics, a topic you've thought about a great deal. How have journalistic ethics changed as digital media has matured? Another great question. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not sure that the ethics have changed, but I know that the environment has changed. Information moves so much more rapidly. Um, there are so many more sources now. Social media is an amplifier of everything. News organizations that might have been able to say, well, you know, we're not going to be first with something now may be challenged with that because information is moving in real time. And can you afford if you're trying to, if you're in a competitive environment, which a lot of news organizations are to sit back and wait another five hours or five days before you put something on the air, if it's circulating through social media, how do you acknowledge that? But I would say, and again, I, 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 I don't think that I'm pushing boulders uphill. I think this is, this is true. If you believe that your brand, that your content, that your news organization as a journalist should be connected to credibility, if you want trust from your audience, you need to be transparent and acknowledge error when you make it. You need to fundamentally say that we are committed to the truth and we are going to go where that takes us. If we're going to be a little later on a story, roll with us because we want to be sure it's right. We'll explain that to you. Uh, we are going to be insistent that our sources, where we get our information from, especially when they're acu you know, uh, accusing something or someone of wrongdoing, or they're making highly controversial claims, that information is really tracked down. I mean, a lot of people who I think are listening to this conversation or watching it saw Spotlight, the movie, right? About how the Boston Globe went after the abuses in the Catholic Church. And what was so great about that movie is it showed how those journalists were so dogged day in, day out, going into the archives, knocking on doors, insisting that they get the information right before they put it out there. That's what has to happen every day, and it's hard work. But um, that's important, and that's at the core of ethics. Search for truth, accountability if you get it wrong, updating stories, providing context, making your sourcing transparent and clear to your, to your audience. That's where your reputation lies. That's where credibility lies. Frank, you've spoken of the need to develop a civic ecosystem to counter misinformation. How did we go about doing that? Uh, it's so challenging in this environment. We go about doing that in a lot, of, a lot of different ways, and there is zero easy answer. There are zero silver bullets here because the environment is so permeated by this stuff. Now, I got something the other day that I don't know where it came from. I didn't recognize the source. It looked perfectly legitimate. The information countered everything I knew, and I was going like, is this, is this real? Could this be real? Could this be credible? And I didn't know, and here I am. I do this for a living, right? Um, look, trusted brands are really important, right? So we need to educate the public on, on what that means. Um, trusted sources are really important. We need to educate people on, on what that means. How do you know whether someone is a trusted source? Uh, you would not take a survey uh, and think it's a real survey. Um, if the person who called you was a convicted criminal and they're trying to ask you questions about crime, right? If you knew that. So understanding who's you know, conveying information, where that comes from. But it's a, it's a tall ask, Lonzo. It's, it's a lot of work. There's a, there was a team out of Stanford University that talked about how news consumers could read laterally. So you open up, a, you open up your browser, you're reading an article, 
and you see a term or you see something that you don't know and you you highlight that, you copy and paste it, you open up another window, you put it in there, you click on it to check on it, and you end up with these tabs across your page. You read, read laterally. Well, how many people are going to do that kind of detective work every time they read a piece? They're, it's just not practical. And it comes to you on your phone while you're waiting for your bus or your latte, right? And you're reading it, you know, quick like that. Um, so I think what we need to do is people know there are scam artists out there. People know that there are used car salespeople who set, will sell you a bum car. And we say buyer beware. And we're going to have to say the same thing and stay with it about our information infrastructure. Buyer beware, news consumer, information consumer beware. And you are responsible for being well-informed. I like analogies, so there's another one. I'll throw it at you. Keep it or leave it if you want. I like to say our, our, our information diet is, is now like our food diet. We know what's good for us and what's not, and we label everything. But potato chips will always be available at the convenience store. They will be cheaper than broccoli. They will go better with a beer than broccoli, and we will continue to buy potato chips, a lot of them, all right? We label them. You know just how much sodium is in them. You know how much fat is in them. We still eat them. We still eat them. So what we have is we have an ongoing effort to you know, inform people that, hey, broccoli's good. Check out the broccoli. New recipes. You can make it really well and better. And that's what we have to be as, as storytellers. We have to be continuing to, to tell people this is credible. This is where you go. And, and not think that this kind of, I hate the term, but media literacy is kind of a one and done thing. We are in an ongoing, never-ending mis- and disinformation environment now, and it's just reality, and we're going to have to adjust to it, and we have to counter it. And as I said, there's no one, there's no one approach to it that's going to solve it. Based on what you've said, are you optimistic, or are we condemned to flounder in an ever-deepening morass of misinformation? <laughs> Flounder's a good fish. It's, it's, it's good. Floundering's not altogether bad. Um, I like to refer to myself, Lonzo, as a glass-half-empty optimist. So the, the journalist in me is really good with the glass half empty, right? And as I like to tell people, if your kid comes home with a report card and there are five A's and one D, what do you ask about first, right? Journalists do that. They go right to the D. <laughs> so do parents. That's sort of human nature. So the glass half empty pessimist side of me says we are in a very difficult environment that's going to get harder. We're seeing this in the mis and disinformation. We're seeing this in deep fakes. People can now produce videos where somebody can could put words in someone's mouth and and that can go out and and be a, a video offering that's going to and we've seen some of this happen already that is completely and totally misleading and very damaging um the optimist in me says there's tremendous opportunity here people have always we've always talked about fish oil salesmen we've always said don't you know pay no attention to that person behind the behind the the uh the curtain there are people who are out to dupe us we've always had journalists who are sensational we've always had politicians who are crooked. So the optimist in me says, we will adapt, but we're going to figure this out. We've got a lot of smart people who are really working on it. The storyteller tells me, in me, says, we don't know how this story is going to end up. And there's a lot of suspense here because maybe the optimist in me is right and we'll adapt and we'll be okay. But maybe that glass really is half empty and it's going to get emptier. And it's why we need to pay intense attention it's why conversations like this and many more much deeper than this matter so much. We need to make sure that we understand what's really at stake here. 
and the challenge to us as citizens and as news consumers, as friends and neighbors, is immense. It's why democracy is under siege in so many places where we didn't think this was going to happen. So it's, it's, it's a profoundly important topic. And as I say, it's a story whose, whose, whose outcome we cannot predict. And, and, and it's a perilous time as a result. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about the competition for eyeballs. If news media is a business, is the goal to maximize audience, to give them more of what they want? Are we in danger of merely providing non-fictional entertainment? If so, how do we fix that? Yes, we're in danger of that. You know, the corporatization of so many things, including journalism and media in this country, has driven us increasingly in that direction. You have certain earnings that are expected. You're supposed to grow those. You know, how many companies are able to say, no, you don't need to do that. Cover your costs and that's good enough. It's why a lot of folks are now talking about nonprofit journalism or philanthropically supported journalism so that communities can get the information they need shorn of the pressure of huge profits or growing profits. Uh, it's, you know, it's a tricky thing, though, because, you know, you still have, you have to pay people. You still have to pay rent. People are working virtually. You've got to have support staff, whether it's the accountant team to pay the bills or the lawyers to do First Amendment protections when a news organization faces, you know, challenges from, from that space. Um, editors to make sure that things are correct. So, you know, there are other models around the world, um, whether it's the BBC or other models that are supported by taxpayers. There are pressures in that, too. We have a particularly corporatized media structure right here, and it's you know, something that is worrisome. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big challenge, whether it's a local TV station that's you know, where the news is an hour and a half or two and a half hours each day, and they've got certain targets that they've got to meet. Otherwise, more budget cuts take place. Or, you know, newspapers that used to print are now not printing so much because it's too expensive and they haven't been able to cover the costs with the changing model. As news organizations go digital, where do the eyeballs come from? So the New York Times has talked about 10 million digital-only subscribers. Well, that's great. The New York Times is a global brand. The New Orleans Times Picayune can't do that. SFGate, San Francisco, can't do that unless they can find something that someone in Paris or London or Riyadh is going to be willing to pay for or across the country. So it's, a, it's an exceptionally challenging model. And as I say, it's why more and more philanthropic organizations, I was just reading about one today that is trying to raise $500 million, a half a billion dollars to invest in local news. What does that mean? Where does it go? And is it sustainable? Big questions about the business model behind the information that people need. Looking at journalism from the 35,000 foot level, how do you balance giving audiences what you think they want with what you think they need, to paraphrase Bob Dylan? I think you can do both. I think you can give people what they want if they're interested in, let's talk, let's talk real, okay? You're in a community and the roads are a mess potholes and they're not being repaired and where's the town, where's the city. They want to know that you do those stories. That's fine. They need to know that because they're getting flat tires because they're driving through gigantic potholes. Um, you know of something that the audience doesn't want yet because it's a, it's a leading edge story. You've just learned something. Tell it in a way that's relatable to people. 
Now that could be a challenge if you're trying to bring a story, you know, in from halfway around the world. You know, you 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 live in Ohio and you're worried about putting food on your table. Why do you care about flooding in Bangladesh? Okay, so how do you tell that story so it's relatable? Why? And you can and you ask that story you, you, that question as a as an editor or a producer or a news provider. What is the relevance of this story to my community? Okay, so you try to connect those things, but. You know, the, one of the things that I love most about being a journalist is this really challenging problem. Like, how do I make this real for people? First job I had was in a little teeny community, 16,000 people. There was a machine tool industry there. And it was at the time when the Japanese were really making inroads into the machine tool industry and starting to steal jobs away. Well, what, what was that? That was about global trade. How could I make global trade interesting to my local community? I talked about their jobs. So... It's about being in tune with your audience. It's about being a good storyteller. And it's about understanding that what people want and what they need sometimes are at odds. But if you can be clever, creative, thoughtful about it, maybe I'm completely unrealistic here, but I honestly, truly believe, having done this, that you can do both those things. Give your audience what they, what they want to know and what they need to know. Maybe it's the balance. You know, how often do you do it? How hard do you hit it? What tone do you take? But I'm not going to give up on that one. Frank, I'd like to close by asking, what are three books you'd recommend to our listeners? <laughs> well, uh, there are a million books I'd recommend, but I'll go with three that I've read or reread recently for different reasons. One is John Meacham's Soul of America. I find this, I'm a history buff myself, and I love the way he looks to history at past moments when America has faced crisis and how we've managed that and how we've emerged from that crisis. And he, you know, throughout the book, the, the theme is we're in a moment of crisis right now with our politics and our division. And he too says, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but history can be a guide. And um, that's helpful. Uh, although his call really is for people to be, to be mindful of what's at stake. And the second book? The second book is a book that Bill Gates wrote. It's a couple of years old now, but it's How to Avoid a Climate Catastrophe. And it's really interesting reading Gates, um, who's a data-driven guy, and he uses really important data points along the way. But he tells a story that is both urgent um, and hopeful. And the hopeful part comes really from Gates' own remarkable role in life as this in crazy inventor-innovator created Microsoft and is one of the richest men on the planet as a result. And at a time of so much angst and anxiety around climate change and extreme weather and wildfires and drought and extreme heat and all the rest, um, I think it's a really good book because it lays out the broad scope of the challenge, what's at stake, what people are experiencing, mm. what's at stake and what people are experiencing. And some of the breakthroughs that are taking place that really can be areas of hope. And finally, I also do like fiction. <laughs> and a very good friend of mine, Daniel Silva, who also used to work at CNN once upon a time, has become a best-selling New York Times author. And his new book called The Collector is a real page turner. And I'm almost done with that now. So I'm not going to do any spoiler alerts or give anything away. But it's, it's action-packed and it connects with the world. But it's also about you know, trying to solve a mystery and a crime. And um, I like that kind of page turner too, because, hey, you got to go to the beach and you got to read something when you're there. 
Oh, one other. It's called Ask More. Who wrote that? Oh, I did. So there's a fourth book there that I highly recommend. And I do believe truly, truly that people, um, if we can ask better questions and be better listeners, whatever we do as journalists and parents and partners and bosses and workers, whatever, uh, I think it makes us better people. It makes us learn more about others. And I do think that too can advance the cause of empathy and understanding and discovery. What are some of the key takeaways that you've heard that readers got from reading Ask More? What I've heard from people is that it's been very helpful to think about the art of the question, the art of inquiry, as an outcome-driven exercise. Do I want information? Do I want explanation? Do I want acknowledgement? Do I want an empathetic relationship? Do I want a creative outcome? What do I want? So when you go to a company retreat and there's a brainstorming session, someone's going to put a question up on the, on the whiteboard or in front of the room, and they're going to say, nothing's out of bounds here. If we're really going to brainstorm, don't be afraid to put up a stupid thing, what you think may think is a stupid idea, because in this brainstorming process, no idea is stupid. We want to consider everything, and we're giving you license to be creative. That's an incredibly liberating thing. So that's there's that. And then the other thing that I've heard from people that I really care about, and it's something, again, I mentioned earlier, and that is this connection between questioning and listening, and really, really active listening. How are you? Well, I'm not so good today. I'm sorry to hear that. And then you move on or, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What's going on? And the, what we call in journalism, the follow-up question. Drilling down. It's what a therapist does. It's what a lawyer will do for a different reason. But that kind of listening and hearing that thing and asking about it, pursuing it, leads to a deeper understanding and oftentimes real revelation in, in, in both cases as, as we explore. So I would say it's you know, what I've heard from people is, you know, this idea of outcomes and then active listening. If, if that's some small contribution I've made, then I feel very good about that. Or as a friend once told me, God gave you two ears and one mouth. There's a reason for that. I interviewed Colin Powell for the book, the late Colin Powell, who I thought was quite remarkable. And uh, he said every once a week when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, we would bring the other uh, military uh, heads in service heads in, and they would sit around and they would have this conversation. And, he, and Powell had what he called the commander's rule. And that was that he could not speak more than 30% of the time. He actually capped his own. You know, there are a lot of people who are so impressed with the sound of their own voice, they don't shut up and they'll bring people together and they'll have a meeting and they're the one who does all the talking or whatever. And I think really, again, we're back to listening, but we're also using, using questions to provoke response. To say, look, I actually care, Lonzo, what you think. So tell me what you think. And then let's explore that. And I'm going to have more questions. Why? How? How do you know? Um, to, you know? And again, in journalism, we call that the follow-up. And that's usually where the, where the richest information lies, is in the follow-up questions, not the initial one. And I think if we can incorporate that into daily life, we'll be better consumers, citizens, and, and you know, friends and, and, and family members. Frank Sesno, thank you very much for talking to us on Discern This. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much.